Pray with me, please. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. We come here every Tuesday that we can to this fellowship that you have called us to, this time when we can set aside whatever's going on in our lives to come together for this hour and 15 minutes or so to dive into your word so that we can so that we might be transformed, so we might come to engage the Bible in ways we haven't before and come to better understandings of who you are and how you work in this world by coming to a deeper, richer understanding of your Holy Word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, my friends, is there anything I would like to talk about before we get started today? Yes, Doug. No, we will be here the week of Thanksgiving, and we will have class that week. Well, I don't, I'm not... Look it up. It is November 14th. Thank you, my love. My lovely wife here, November 14th is the Tuesday we will be gone. So, there we go. Now you know. Okay, so, anything else? Scott, I just have one thing to Any say. other question I can't answer? One thing to say that you talked about Nietzsche on Sunday, and I didn't understand it when I had it in philosophy class, yes. and I'm not sure I still get it, you know, it's yes. difficult stuff. Yes. Yeah. Did I help? <laughs> oh, that's a loaded question. It is. Uh, you, you know the answer. Yes. I, I don't, don't. I'm not going to answer it. My, my advice is don't make it more complicated no, than it has yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. Don't make it more complicated than it has to be. You, Nietzsche's... An ocean of words, striking, shocking words, an ocean of words around a relatively small number of ideas. There we go. Yeah, well, you know, but like all things in life, push yourself. You're an educated man. That's all I'm saying. You know, here we go. But next week we get to Judaism. Okay? Yes. Well, I might have a surprise or two for you along the lines there. Oh, oh yeah, you never know. Never know. As soon as you're feeling you're getting comfortable, Jim, All right. you know, I'll throw something new at you. Okay. Maimonides, how about that? Maimonides. He was the greatest of the Jewish philosophers. Okay, good. All right. Yes, yes, there we go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we're talking about Maimonides or not, but anyway. So... Okay, anything else? Well, I guess we're going to plunge back into 2 Samuel, right? So where we are in 2 Samuel is we are in the 13th chapter. And the starting point would be the 20th verse. But I need to, we just want to get back into a little bit. It's a shame we ever have to stop and break this up into pieces. We are in these chapters that are the stories of David's family. And they are the stories of David's family that tell us the story of the consequences of David's sin. You remember the prophet Nathan. After David took Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Nathan confronted him and said, You are that man. You are that taker. And basically, you brought a sword into your own house. And last week we saw this tragic story of David's oldest son, Amnon, raping his half-sister Tamar. 
And whereas in the story of David and Bathsheba, the punches are kind of pulled and it's a little bit maybe ambiguous and everybody wants to argue about it all the time, there's no ambiguity in this story. It is very clear. He raped Tamar, um, the son of David's brother, helped Amnon come up with a plan. And it is a tragic story. And she knows that she is ruined for life. In their culture, that would be the consequence of this. Um, we can rail about that. We should rail about that. But that's, that's the truth. I found this painting. This is called James Tussaud. I've, I've brought many of his paintings to my classes over the years. James Tussaud was a 19th century Frenchman artist who moved to England and found, and God found him, that's how I should really put it, when Tussaud was, I don't know, like maybe 50 or something, and he painted 700 scenes from scripture. And he was not an expert on what people, you know, necessarily wore, though I'm sure as an artist of the day, he did as much homework as he could. What he liked painting, what he was particularly noted for was this pa painting of clothing and fabric and drapery and all that kind of thing. So this is his painting of Tamar running away. Um, he titled it The Desolation of Tamar and she is desolate. She has been made desolate by Amnon. And here's that, here's that family tree again. So I'm going to leave the, the tree up because Admittedly, you know, it gets a little confusing. Most of the people you see on this tree are not part of this story. This is the story of Amnon, Tamar, and then Absalom. And the reason Absalom is in this story because he is Tamar's full brother. He's half-brothers with Amnon. Okay? And Amnon is the heir to the throne, the crown prince, as some people might put it, that kind of thing. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. The rape has just happened, and she has fled, been, not fled, she has been sent away. And remember it says that, that, that Amnon hated her now, just hated her. The moment he took her and raped her, from that moment on, he hated her. Yes. In that society, at that time, there's no penalty on Amnon. Uh, the woman was not married. If she was married, I guess, like Bathsheba, it's a problem. There is a penalty. Uh, this is the no his penalty. raping of Tamar is a prohibited relationship oh, because, because they are related. They didn't have the word incest, but that's what it is. So if they weren't related, there would be no problem. <sighs> a, a, an act of violence. No, I. I, I you know, no, I would say under, under the law of Moses, there would still be a problem. It would still be the taking. You know, it's, yeah. You know, it's, yeah, enough said. Yes, it would still be. But this is a particularly prohibited relationship. I mean, God's way is never the way of violence. Let me put it that way. Now, would he, people, would he, might he suffer a penalty? Well, you know, look what happens to David. I mean, nobody comes trying to, like, you know, arrest David or anything like that because he was king when he took Bathsheba. 
the consequences will be consequences that he brought into his own household. But this is, this is beyond the pale, beyond the pale. So, look at verse 19 in chapter 13. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the innate robe she was wearing, that's a sign of grief, in a way, she, under, she understands that in a way, this is her death. Her life will never be as she imagined it would be. She will not have children. She will spend the rest of her life in the palace with the other women. She put her hands on her head and she went away weeping aloud as she went. The desolation of Tamar. Her brother, verse 20, her brother, this is the full brother Absalom, her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, it's a little bit, in, in the sexual sense is what he means. Be quiet for now. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Does that surprise you that Absalom would say that? Surprises me. They are full brother and sister. They grew up together. He says, don't take it to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Hmm. Just so much carried in so few words. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon, because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two, yes. This is also David's daughter, right? Yes. Enough said. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I don't mm -hmm. understand why he wasn't more upset. Whom? David. David. At the situation. So. Why he isn't doing something? Why he doesn't do something? Well, okay, let me look back in verses 20, 21, 22. Huh. David's really furious. So what does he say to Amnon? Nothing. Seemingly nothing. What does Absalom say to Amnon? Nothing. nothing. We're told that explicitly. Neither good or bad. So David's mad, but does he do anything? But who is he mad at? Who should he be mad at? He should be mad at Amnon. He, I bet he is mad at Amnon. But is, but is he feeling any empathy towards his daughter? Well, it just says he's furious. That's all it says. You know, you know, you wonder like what's under there. But if you notice in your reading of this that David doesn't actually do anything, that's significant. 
He might be furious. He might be really, really mad at Amnon. Might have a lot of feelings and sympathy for Tamar. But does he, does he do anything in verses 20, 21, and 22? No. Or whatever those verses are. Okay. No, he doesn't. And Absalom doesn't. Now, so just keep, stay with me. Two years later. Right? So you're going to have to keep an eye on time frames here. Because there are these jumps in time. Two years later. When Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, that's one of the tribes in Israel. Here it is. Up here, up here, up here, it is right there. Red arrow. Okay? He, when Absalom's got sheep, sheep shearers up there, and they're shearing sheep. sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and. You know, it's kind of a big deal. And so Absalom invited all the king's sons to come there. They're going to have a party. So he invites, he invites all of them, all the king's sons, to come to Baal Hazor and have a party. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? So now he wants the sons and he wants David. And all of David's attendants and courtiers, and to use a more recent term. The king says, no, my son, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Hmm. Hmm. Is that why? Question comes to my mind. Not be a burden, it's a party. Absalom's probably not hurting for sheep. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with him Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. So David isn't going to go to the party. He's going to stay back in the palace where he got in trouble last time. Of course, that was more than two years ago, right? Not more than two years ago. And the king's sons, including Amnon, are going to go to the party that Absalom is throwing. Absalom ordered his men, quote, Listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the other king's sons got up, they mounted their mules, and they fled. Not quickly. <laughs> no picture of beautiful horses striding across. They got on their mules and they fled. <laughs> So, all right. So, think about what's happened before, to go to your point. Absalom doesn't say anything to Amnon. He doesn't really say anything to Tamar. But what's going on inside Absalom? Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. 
perhaps beginning to nurture that flame of vengeance from the day, from the moment he found out what Amnon had done to his sister. His sister, his full sister. Flaming that fan of vengeance. Sure, God might say, vengeance is mine. But that's not satisfying to Absalom. And so he plots and he plots. And now the time has come to strike two years later. Why wait two years? Nobody's going to be thinking Absalom's going to do anything. If he had tried to do this a month later, Amnon might not have gone to the party. But now it's been two years, so sure, of course, you know, that's ah, Tamar, who cares? She's, she's now gone. She's living in Absalom's household. She's a desolate woman all by herself. Um, so sure, I'll go. All the king's sons go. David does not. Why? We're not told why, really, David does not go. Does he suspect? Does he wonder? Is David sitting back looking at what's happened in his household to a degree desolate himself by Amnon taking Tamar in the way Amnon did? Does David feel any grief or guilt in his own taking of Bathsheba? Prop. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope so. But what is, he, what is he doing? David isn't really doing a damn thing. <laughs> Am I wrong? No. He isn't going. If he suspects something, he should go <coughs> in order to prevent it. But he doesn't go. If he suspects something is up with Absalom, perhaps he doesn't go because he wants Amnon to be punished. And David didn't have the courage to do it himself. Has Amnon, to, just have to go by the text, it's all we have, is the words on the page. Was Amnon punished for his rape of Tamar? No. No. Not by David. David didn't even, didn't, even, didn't even scold him for it. None of that is recorded for us because I think none of that happened. Solomon's born at this time, but he's just a little tiny kid. Yeah. yeah. So he wouldn't really be included in. So he's he's a toddler at this point. So no reason to think he went to this this shindig. No. No. Verse 10. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck 30. down... What? 30. Oh, I see that's this vision thing. I'm telling you, it's a problem. Yes, my love. That's, Patty's made a good point. What did the other king's sons do? Nothing? 
They got up on their mules and they fled. <laughs> no, don't catch me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I just can't help myself. <laughs> See, I, I basically, for 20 years that I've been doing this, I basically thought that I wanted to help people embrace the Bible, engage the Bible, and enjoy it. Enjoy it. I think many people weren't brought up in church environments where the Bible was something to be enjoyed for adults. Maybe for little kids with all kinds of cute little stories about this and that, but, but adults, oh no, oh no. No, it should be enjoyed. These stories are written to be remembered, and the way you remember something is by engaging it and taking it in. And yeah, so the sons, verse 30, thank you very much, Patty. While they were on their way, the report came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. Isn't this the way? Yes. yes. This, this is the way. You know, the mules are not fast enough, Diane says. Yes. <laughs> the mules are still slogging their way through the hillsides. So, so it's, it's um, the report arrives and the report is wrong. Don't, we, don't, we, we don't know where the report came from. But somebody has gotten there ahead of the mules. Maybe somebody won the horse. Got there ahead of the mules. Why were the other sons fearful of Amnon, fearful of Amnon's servants? We don't know how many, when they got to the sheep sharing, I don't know if all the sons actually ended up going, okay? And, but however many there were, they were afraid of confronting the attendants. I don't know. But they, they, were not, they were not a help, right? They were not a help. They just got on their mules, and ran, <laughs> sauntered away. <laughs> well, so the king now gets this report. David gets this report that all the king's sons are dead. That is, that is catastrophic. Catastrophic. Here's some information. Stop. <laughs> I've, I turned on do not disturb. I don't know. I don't, I don't even have Siri turned on. She is so insistent. I have her turned off, off, off. Anyway, okay, Scott. 2023 Bible fun. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood up, tore his clothes. I was just asked this question the other day. It was around, maybe we were doing Mark yesterday. What does the tearing of the clothes mean? The tearing of the clothes is a measure of grief. In Mark, Caiaphas rises and tears his robe at grief over the blasphemy he has heard. Tamar tears her clothes, the old word rents her clothes, her clothing, over grief at what has befallen her because in essence it is, it is her death compared to the life that she thought she would have. And now David rises. He tears his clothes, his grief over the death of all of his sons. And I don't know 
not to Solomon peace, it doesn't matter. If he's got eight other sons besides Solomon, that's something to grieve, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, well, sort of, except the tearing of the veil when Jesus dies is not a sign of grief. The tearing of the veil in, in the temple when Jesus dies connotes not grief, it connotes that the separation between humanity and God is gone because the, the, this giant curtain hung there and it was behind it only the high priest could go, the high priest couldn't encounter God above the mercy seat, and so when that, when that curtain really, um, is, you should kind of see it more like a curtain than a, like a diaphanous veil, when the curtain is torn, that connotes that the separation is gone. Because, why? Because we have been reconciled to God. There's, if you picture us having a gulf, that there being a gulf between us and God created by sin, God has now closed that gulf. It's like the story of the prodigal son. It's like in that moment, we're the son and the father sweeps us up in his arms. And so the curtain, so, so that, that, that's a difference. Okay, so, yes. Is it fair to say King David lacked courage? Well, he isn't, he, in, in this, in this, I think you could say that about David. Does David lack courage? He isn't demonstrating a courage, the courage it would take to confront his son Absalom. Right? This is not the David, this is not the David we knew earlier. And what is the difference in David? What, the, what has happened? What has David done? He took Bathsheba, he murdered her husband. And I think, this is us, I don't want to be a psychotherapist or something here, but I think he is having big trouble with his guilt over having brought the sword into his own house. Because that's what Nathan told him. Look what you've done, right? You have brought the violence into your own house. David has started this cycle of violence and it's a long way from being over. This is just the beginning of what's to come. Just the beginning. And I think David, I would expect David to be weighted down by guilt and that guilt might well manifest itself in a lack of courage or conviction that he would have had at one time in his life. But now, in the circumstances, I think that's a fair point. So, David stood up, he tore his clothes, he lay down on the ground, and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn as well. So everybody is tearing their clothing and they're grieving and there's crying and there's tears and David is on the ground all of the sons are dead. But Jonadab, sons of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now who is Jonadab? He's one I told you to mark in your Bible or your brain. Jonadab is the one who, came, who went to Amnon with the scheme to get Tamar. Look back at, at verse 5 
in this very chapter. That's, that's Jonadab. Jonadab is the one who schemed with Amnon so Amnon could get Tamar. Jonadab is not a trustworthy fellow. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uncle Joe or nephew Joe if you're David because he's David's nephew, right? Son of Shemaiah, David, one of David's brothers said, my Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. The reports come in, maybe by, <laughs> brought by somebody on a horse instead of a mule. What does Jonadab have? A telegraph? Telephone? Texting? Email? How does he know? How does he know? I want to offer an a possible answer. We're not told. He knows what Amnon was planning. That, to me, is the simplest hypothesis that he knew what... Absalom. What, I'm sorry, he knew what Absalom... Wouldn't it be great if the names both didn't start with an A? You know, like one is Bob and the other is Ken or something. But no... No, no. So I'll, I'll make that mistake again, and please give me some grace. I'm an old man. Okay. So Jonadab, the schemer, the untrustworthy Jonadab, we might use that adjective before his name, my lord should not think that they have killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. So Jonadab, who schemed with Amnon, seems to have had some discussions or something about this with Absalom, and Absalom has opened up to Jonadab and said, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. You watch. It might take me two years, but I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. And where's David in all that? No, nowhere. Does, is David aware of that? Seemingly not. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Big sentence. Absalom had fled. He has to. He just murdered his half-brother. Now the man standing watch, so this is now we're back in Jerusalem. Um, you know, it's a walled city. There would be people on the gates and the walls standing watch. The man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the road west of him coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Now, the way this transpires a little bit, kind of try to hold in your head, because we'll see something like this later. The watchman looks out. The men are coming. The men are coming. I see men in the direction of Horonahim on the side of the hill. And Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in wailing loudly. 
the king too and all his attendants, they wept very bitterly. This is yet more violence and murder. Bathsheba was taken and her husband was murdered. Tamar was taken and her brother is now murdered. Cycles of violence. Cycles of violence in households. David's household in this case happens in other households. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. Now Geshur, so, so Am, Absalom has fled. He probably already knew where he was going to run. He has run to Geshur. Wait a minute, I don't have to point. You would think I could remember everything I have to do to get ready for class, but there you go. I can't. So, there is Geshur up here. It's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area that will later be known as the land of the Gerasenes and stuff. When Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to this side, and goes to, into the graveyard and chases the demons out of the man, the legion out of the man, and the pigs run off the cliff and all that stuff. That's where that story happens, right here. In Jesus' day, this will be a Gentile land. Those ways of speaking don't matter too much a thousand years before Jesus, right? This is just a land of Gesher, and this guy is the king, and Absalom has run for what? Safe haven, sanctuary, because he has murdered his half-brother. Flat out murdered him. We would call it in our world cold-blooded murder. Been planning it. Don't said he's been planning it for two years. David's murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was cold-blooded, planned, worked out, schemed, and put into place and ended as David wanted it to end, which was Uriah's death. So, yes? So in both cases, David didn't kill he gave an order. But that's, in our society today, he would be guilty of first degree murder. But so did Absalom. Absalom didn't You're right. But Absalom is as guilty as right. if he held the knife himself. Right, I'm not saying that he's just, not He's just not willing to do the dirty work. Right, yeah. exactly. There's a pattern here. Yeah. Very good word. I should have been using that word all along. There's a pattern here yes. between David and Absalom and Amnon. There's a pattern here, this pattern of violence. And who starts it? 
David, and that's what Nathan confronts him about, and that's what Nathan tells him when he says, you know, the consequences of this are going to fall on your own house. That's the way God, that's the way God has made the world in which we work. It really isn't that God is sitting around waiting to smite people or do bad things to people. Can you picture Jesus sitting around waiting to smite people or do bad things to people? No. The consequences, actions have consequences. And evil actions bear terrible consequences. Not always clearly, not always cleanly, but far more often than not. And so the pattern here is set by David. That's really an important part of this to see. Okay? So, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, but King David mourned many days for his son. Which son? The writer could tell us, I suppose. Yes? My study Bible says that the king of Geshur was Absalom's grandfather. Okay, yeah, I'll buy that. It makes sense that that would be a place he would run then. He's the father of, uh, of the mom, I guess. After Absalom, we don't know which son he's mourning. They don't th maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe he's mourning both. What's he doing? Is he mounting up the mules? And heading up to Gesher? To get Absalom? And punish him? How could he do that? After what he did to Uriah. You could see his son throwing it back in his face, you hypocrite. You're coming for me? After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. Three years. So now we're five years after the rape of Tamar. Three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. So he's over mourning Amnon. He's been consoled. That's in the past. And now he wants to go to Absalom. You think he wants to go to Absalom to punish him in some way? No, I don't think so either. Okay. Let's see if he goes. Longing to go and going are two different things. Well, Joab, son of Zuriah, remember Joab? Key player in this whole saga, Joab, the murderer of Abner. Joab, the one who arranged the murder of Uriah, the Hittite. Joab, son of Zuriah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa, which is just a little village, and had a wise woman brought from there. A wise woman. Isn't that interesting? 
a wise woman brought from Tekoa. And Joab said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Grieving, right? Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. I guess when the women were mourning, they didn't, you know, use any makeup or things that would make them smell better or anything like that. I imagine people in this world didn't smell great to start with. But anyway, <laughs> dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. That Joab, what a schemer that guy is. Man, oh man, talk about being able to work out a plan. He's got a plan. You know, the cool thing about the writing of this, it's kind of like when, in a movie, when you see something's whispered in somebody's ear and you want to know what they said, and they don't tell you in the movie. That's what it is here. We, we're, we're not going to find out yet what Joab told her. You've got to wait. Well, I take a drink of water. Okay, friends. Verse 4, when the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honor. That's a, called obeisance. On the ground, you're king, I'm not. And she said, help me, your majesty. And the king asked her, what is troubling you? And she then says, I am a widow. My husband is dead. So I, right there, in this culture, that means she's a, she's a marginalized person. She is on the edge of desolation. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with, with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Even, she's even closer to the edge of desolation because a widow needed a husband, sons, somebody in this world. She goes on, Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, Hand over the one who struck his brother down, so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Who's she functioning as, in a way? A pretty straightforward way. She's functioning as Nathan the prophet, right? In this story, she's telling him, because you're getting the drift of the story that Joab has told her to say, the words he put into her mouth. Give us that brother so we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out only the burning coal, the only burning coal I have left, she says. He's my only son. He's my only protection. I need that son, the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descended on the face of the earth. It will be our end. Struck down his brother. What other story is that like? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Struck down his brother. The king, David, said to the woman, Go home and I will issue an order 
in your behalf. But the woman from Dakota said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. And the king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me, and they will not bother you again. She said, Then let the king invoke Yahweh his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction, whoever that might be, whoever's going to come and, and take the son of the life of her other son. Remember, this is all made up, right? She's been dressed for the part, and she's been given the dialogue. So that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as Yahweh lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Okay, so she has been, Joab put all this in her mouth. She's been roping David in. Little bit after little bit after little bit in the story, David is now promising to take care of her, to issue the king's edict that her remaining son can't be harmed. The woman said, Let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. I, got, she's, I have one more thing to say to you. Speak, David said. The woman said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself for the king? For the king has not brought back his banished son. How can you tell me this when it's, in essence, been three years, three years now, and your banished son Absalom, you have not brought him back? Oh, you, maybe you long for him. But he's still up there and you haven't brought him back. How can you tell me that you're going to do this for me when you haven't done this for your own son? That's the essence of it, isn't it? Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Everybody dies. It happened. Amnon's dead. There's nothing you could do to bring Amnon back. There's nothing Amnon could have done to unrape Tamar. But Absalom's alive. He's your son. He is your... <coughs> eldest son. Because I think in this chart, that's the way they're working. So Absalom is now the eldest. Because he killed the heir to the throne. You see? For the verse 14. 14. 14, 14. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Well, that's a line to underline. That is the truth about God. Right? God's desires to... <laughs> to to coin a word, God's desire is to unbanish us. Take it to the story in Genesis. What, what happens to Adam and Eve after they eat the fruit in their rebellion against God? And use the word banish to tell me. Banished from the Garden of Eden. Right? And so ever since the Garden of Eden, God has been about unbanishing humanity, restoring creation renewing creation 
reconciling humanity to himself, bringing them back, bringing them home, bringing the exiles back. The Bible is filled with metaphors around all of this. Yes. Abigail's son, Chiliad. Don't know? Don't know. Does a, I don't know. Good question. I guess I could look him up in a Bible dictionary. Don't know. He might have died in... Because remember, life is tenuous. Good question. You could probably be Wikipedia, the guy. I doubt he has his own wiki page, but you know. <laughs> I don't know. So, verse 15. So, let's go back. But that is not what God desires. Rather, God desires ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. King, can't you do at least that yourself? If that is God's way, why is it not your way? Isn't that our point? Verse 15. Boy, she has a good memory. Joy, I put all this in her mouth. <laughs> and now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. Because the killing of, of both the second son would mean that the family's land inheritance would have nowhere to go. That was a big part of this whole thing about widows marrying brothers and all that kind of stuff. Was holding that family intact. He does have a Wikipedia page. Chiliad has a Wikipedia page? And what does it say about him? Oh, it says a lot. Oh, I'm going to have to go home and look that up. I'll send you the link. Awesome. It says, like, according to ancient rabbinic texts, he's one of four uh, Israelites that did uh, not, they think, did not have sin. I mean, it's obvious. Okay, so, so what, I think when you, hearing what Patty just told me, I think when you go and you look up Chiliad, as I'm sure you will, Doug, in Wikipedia, that, that, um, <laughs> What happens with biblical characters from Scripture? People want to tell stories about them, right? And legends and myths grow up. You remember in the beginning of Joshua, there is this prostitute named... Wow, oh, I'm getting so old. Talk amongst yourselves for one moment. <laughs> Gosh, this is so sad. She's, she's so prominent. She's in Jesus' genealogy. She is so prominent. No, Tamar is the uh, Genesis 39 or so. Um, Rahab. Okay, I should remember Rahab's name. We should all remember Rahab's name. Rahab in Joshua 2 is a prostitute who basically hides the spies from Israel as, they, as, as the Israelites are preparing to capture Jericho. And she is remembered greatly 
in the annals and lore of um, the Israelites. She is remembered as one of the most beautiful women in the world, maybe the most beautiful woman that's ever been. She is remembered as having married um, Joshua, I think. None of that's in Scripture. But she is in Jesus' genealogy, okay, which honors her. Well, there. We like to tell stories. So when you find like rabbinic tradition or something, that's what you're running into. And how many, when the kings come to visit Jesus, how many are there? Who says? Not your Bible. What are their names? They have them, but not in the Bible. Because people want to tell stories. They want to elaborate things. They want to, that's what people would like to do. So, Chiliad, I guess, has a whole long tradition running. So, he, now he's got his own wiki page. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that's cool. Patty's got one more thing else. How did would this become all about Chiliad? Anyway. Oh, because we brought him up, but he is Abigail's son. Yes. There was question whether he was really David's son or was she already pregnant from her husband. Oh, my gosh. See, people also like soap operas, right? All right. Well, there's one for you. So the question is, is Chiliad really David's son by Abigail or was she already pregnant by whom? Nabal, the fool. And because of that, in the palace, they were saying, he doesn't look at all like David. And yeah. the palace, they were noting that Chiliad didn't look at all like David. Oh, my. See, that's the stories people like to tell. You know? Pe people, I, I realize we are 3,000 years past we are 3,000 years past this, and people in different cultures live very differently and have very different belief systems and very different values, but there's certain things that bind us all together. And one of them is soap operatic melodramas. Every culture's got them. This has been a Hallmark Who, Chiliad? Got his own wiki page. But he dies. Oh. You know, who else has died? Everybody. <laughs> he died before David. See? That's sad. Anyway, okay, enough about Chiliad. You are welcome to go home and wiki. In fact, you can go home and, and, wi and wiki David's sons and check out the, you know, the extended bios of each one. I doubt they're all as juicy as Chiliad's. Is he David's son or not? Well, I'm going to put a big question mark on this chart right here next time I use it. Okay. So, she says to him, verse 17, Now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance, for my lord the king is like an angel of God, in discerning good and evil. That's very straightforward sucking up. <laughs> May Yahweh, your God, be with you. 
And now she has finished speaking the words that Joab put into her mouth. And the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. And the woman says, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is it the hand of Joab with you in all this? He's smelling it out. Right? Ah. He is... It's like, ah, come on. This is the hand. What's the old... There's something rotten in Denmark. Is that from Hamlet or something? Ah, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered, As surely as you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord, the king, says. In other words, if you've said it, it has to be right because you are the king. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words, all these words, it took me a month to learn. Now, all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation, which is what? Absalom's up there in Gesher, three years, and David hasn't gone to see him, hasn't sent word to him. What would be the simplest thing David could do? Just send for him. Just send an invitation. Say, send him a note, send a messenger up saying, your father, the king, would like you to come home. Simple as that. The king's, um, your servant, verse 20, your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. And the king said to Joab, very well. Okay, Joab, I'll do it. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his feast, face to the ground to pay him honor. That's David. And he blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Now, do you think there was risk in what Joab did? Yes. I sure do. Yeah. I mean, he basically deceived the king, went out and found this wise woman, dressed her up, put the words in her mouth, brought her in, led David through this long story to get to the point, which is God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Shouldn't you do the same? Verse 14, the second half of verse 14 is the thing to underline. No? 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, the second half. That's, that's a big line there. When she says to David, this is not what God desires, that you would be estranged from Absalom. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. That is the truth about God. That's, that's kind of that's this. That's God's work in this world. That's, that's the purpose. That's the work that culminated in Jesus and his faithfulness and death. So,
Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. Meaning he, David is, David is sent for him, but he's not going to meet Absalom. He's not going to encounter Absalom. He's not going to meet him enough to forgive him or, or hug him or whatever it is he wants to do. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. So if you're Absalom, you've come back. David has called you back. It's been three years. You think you and David are going to basically be reconciled at this point. You've done a terrible thing. David did a terrible thing. David, Uriah, Absalom, Abnon. Time passes and passes. But David <laughs> invites him back but won't, let's use the kingly word, he won't receive him. Even if he just brings him back as the king, he won't receive him as the king would receive somebody he sent for. Wow. And so Absalom has to go back to his own household without seeing David. And who is waiting in Absalom's house? Who lives there? Remember? Tamar lives there. She lived out the rest of her days in Absalom's house. Wow. So isn't that a turn of events? Absalom, David sends for him. I mean, you know, Joab carries the day. David sends, sells Joab to go up and bring him back. But David won't meet him. Hey, yes. Why didn't Joab go to... Ah. Why didn't Joab just confront David directly and just say, it's been three years, we need to get him back? I, I think, hmm, why, 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 why? I hate those questions. Why, 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 why? <laughs> Nothing personal. Why, why, why? I why? Might Joab have... Joab knew his own reputation, I think, to some extent. Might he think that David would not receive that request well coming from Joab? Might he think, maybe he didn't need to think this, that some subterfuge was needed? Might he know, and he might well know, about Nathan's confrontation with David and say to himself, well, I need to engineer something like that. And that, we don't know, three years have passed. Might Joab have tried it on his own? which would then help David smell it out, as he did. See, those are all the, again, all of this you would like, as much as we have, you would like more. So we, we you know, can't help but try to fill in the pieces. These are such marvelous stories. We wonder things. We wonder what we would do. We wonder what David's doing. All of that stuff. What we do know, key point, he does send for Absalom, but David doesn't even meet Absalom. Wow!
Wow. You know, fathers and kings can make lots of mistakes. This has to be one of them. I mean, if he wants to punish Absalom, punish Absalom. If he wants to forgive Absalom in light of David's own murder of Uriah, then forgive him. But inviting him back and saying, well, you're not going to see my face, you're not going to meet me, <sighs> takes my breath away. So other thoughts are reflections. And if you have a why question, they're obviously just fine because... <laughs> Where's Nathan? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if Nathan, five years have passed, Nathan, Nathan may be dead. I mean, five years have passed. I mean, when, when did we last encounter Nathan? Didn't we last encounter Nathan when he confronts? So you have the rape of Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. Enough time passes for the first son to die. Solomon to be born, right? All that has happened, right? Then you have in the course of time, undetermined amount of time. It's not five years. Though. Not From simply Bathsheba. five years. It, was nine, yeah, I mean, just, just think, let's just think about the timeline. Bathsheba and Uriah. Then the child born to them dies, and he is like, isn't he like the child like two? Yes. She becomes pregnant with Solomon. He's born, so with that at least say three years, right? Then the next story is, in the course of time, the chapter begins, some indeterminate amount of time, and then it's two years after that, after the Amnon rapes Tamar, that Absalom murders Amnon, and now it's three years after that. So this whole thing could be eight years, nine years after Uriah's murder, so Nathan might well be dead. I don't think we encounter Nathan again in Samuel. I think he just fades away. But the woman, she's not called a prophet, but because she isn't a prophet. She speaks the word that Joab speaks. Um, but she's a wise woman. The, notice the adjective applied to her. It's not, she's a wise woman. She's a wise woman. You know, that, that, that adjective, the word wise, we're just finishing up a sermon series on wisdom. Wise means wise in the ways of God. It is a very wise thing that she says to David when she says, God devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. That's wisdom. That's the essence of wisdom. Understanding that about God and humanity, that's, that's, yeah. She is a wise woman that Joab chose. Now she's, I think I'm pretty sure, I'm sure I've looked this up in the past, that calling her a wise woman implies that she has, that she's sort of seen in some elevated state by those in the village of Tekoa and around it. Um, but in that she's never called a prophet. She doesn't really function as a prophet because the words she speaks are Joab's, not God's. Did David take the stand so he wouldn't appear weak? Maybe. Right? What has he done about anything up to this point in this? That he, he didn't go to the banquet. And do we know if he ever accepts him in the future? 
Well, let's just wait and find out. <laughs> you are looking down the road. So you have to, you do. I mean, the story invites you to put yourself in David's shoes, and the story invites you to put yourself in Absalom's shoes. Those two men will be the key characters moving forward. It's their story the writer wants to tell us. It's their story that the writer of sacred scripture wants us to hear. The story of David and Absalom. So look at the... Let me, let's start back at, at, at oh. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Okay, verse 23. Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. The king says, we must, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. Verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. He was a spitting image of Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> if you don't know who Chris Hemsworth is, wiki that, yeah, the ladies all know. Wiki that and you'll know what we're talking about. <laughs> Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. Oh my gosh, he's got so much hair. Poor guy. Oh man, he's got the flowing locks and it just, oh my gosh, just shut up. He used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. This guy has got so much hair. Now, let me we're going to stop there. So let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. That about Absalom, his hair is a detail to remember. It's a detail to remember, as is Absalom's appearance and his handsomeness. Who are people in this world drawn to? The handsome, the strapping six foot tall, like Saul, right? Saul was from what? Central casting. No, David was a little teenager guy, but he was. He grew to be a very... Good-looking man, as, as you can see if you go to Florence sometime. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll pick up there next week because it is actually now almost 1.15 and that clock threw me off a bit. I, I'm going to have to reset it somehow. But that's, that's, that's not right. So, anyway. Any final question? Because I do have a couple of minutes. Is Joab scheming on Absalom's behalf? 
I wouldn't put it past him. That Joab is quite the schemer. The question is, is this Joab's scheme to replace David with Absalom? I, well, we will see. There's much that lies ahead. Much that lies ahead. So, anything else? Just kind of goes to show you that, yeah, our world is very, very different from there. There are basic things in humans that we all share across time and now today with others around the globe. Right? We, di we have different cultures, languages, and beliefs, and values, and we worship different gods, but there's certain things about being human. And some of that, I think, flows from being made in the image of God, and some of that flows from every human heart is burdened by the darkness of sin. So, okay. Well, I'm going to pray. If you would pray with me. Gracious Lord, just be with us as we leave here. Um, let these stories kind of sink in. Let them raise questions in our mind. Help us to step into these stories about David and Absalom and Joab. You, give, you gave us these for a reason. They could be sparsely told. They could be told like they are in Chronicles. But that isn't how they are here in Samuel. They are carefully written and, and intriguing and engaging and, and really in their own way delightful. And we just pray that you would help us to see your word in this about our lives and who we are called to be. For you indeed do not want us to be banished. You want us to be reconciled with you. Hence the gift of your son Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.